This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Basically, I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and today our final episode of Mental Health Month, which has actually been Mental Health Two Months, but that's no bad thing. I have in studio with me today uh, Katie McKenna, who is an accredited psychotherapist. And today we're going to be talking about the fawn response, which I am super excited to hear more about. We all know about fight, flight, freeze and fawn, which we I haven't heard of. But I think an awful lot of people, having done a little bit of research, an awful lot of people do naturally. Yeah, I think a lot of people are familiar um, with fight or flight. A lot of people haven't even heard of freeze. But you're right, a more accurate description is freeze, fight, flight, fawn. And although people mightn't have heard of the 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 term fawn response, what generally they might be familiar with it would be people pleasing or codependency. Yes. So basically, in an effort to, when faced with a threat, some people will fight back, some people will run away, others will just freeze and do nothing. And some people will adapt themselves to make themselves less of a threat to make them more likeable by the threat maybe um, is, is it always a trauma response or is it just something that some people naturally like a way that people are naturally going to respond to anything Yes, it is. All I suppose in any stressful situation, we can act out of either of those. To have any of those responses, freeze, fight, flight, fawn, is very healthy. If you went to attack me now, it would be healthy for me to act out of one of them. So if you were physically bigger, a 20 stone man, um, it wouldn't be helpful for me to fight. It might be helpful for me to appease you until I got to safety. So these responses are very healthy. What happens when it's a trauma response as opposed to that would be a stress response if I was to act in the moment. What happens as a trauma response is when we do have trauma in childhood and we are in this heightened state of hypervigilance, anxiety, and we think that that is just me, this is just who I am. We think that this is our personality types. And yes, a lot of the times we think it's because I want you to like me, but really it's a deeper fear that you will pull away from me, that I will lose connection from you. And that leaves us with that dysregulated um, sense of feeling unsafe. So I suppose the definition of what a fawn type is, is that they seek safety by merging with the wishes, needs and demands of others. And they act as if they unconsciously believe that the price of admission to any relationship is to forfeit all their needs, rights, preferences and boundaries. That is mind blowing because I know mm. so many people who are like, oh, I'm just a people pleaser. That's yes. just who I am. And like on further drilling down to it, it's like, are you or, you know, did your mother only love you when you like only overtly love you when you were being good? And so now you feel like if you're only worth loving, if you're meeting everybody's needs and making sure that everyone else's needs are met, but yours are not. That's exactly it. You summed it up exactly. And Pete Walker states actually that a phone type codependent is the child of at least one narcissistic parent where the parent makes it all about them and the parent can separate um, where I end and you, the child, begin. So I will live through you. Um, the, the term is parentification. You will end up eating, meeting my needs in order for you to feel a sense of safety. And in So that's even as simple as like, oh, you're giving me a headache. You're like to a ch- saying to a child, like you're you're annoying me. You are upsetting me. 
that like you are become you are as a child are responsible for how I am feeling, yes. which you shouldn't be. And therefore the child learns, oh, OK, I have to act in X, Y and Z way to make my mother feel good or father or whoever. Yes. So then I become a little fawn. Yes. Now, here's the difference, because so without scaring all the parents listening, and I myself am a parent of four children. So I understand that in the moment that we can say things flippantly. Um, so this is not just that if you say that once, oh, you're annoying me or you're doing my head in, that now we are going to traumatise a child. Oh, no. But the child also has a sense of like, what is a pattern of behaviour? Yes. yes. So this yeah. is consistent behaviour. And when people talk about trauma generally, um, what I hear is they generally think that it's physical abuse, sexual abuse. But trauma can also be what wasn't done, what wasn't given. So there, when a parent particularly can, let's say, stonewall, can give the child the silent treatment. So if you've done something to disappoint or upset me, something that I don't think is the status quo that you should be doing, and I give you the silent treatment, which is withdrawing my love and affection from you, that is painful for the child. That is dysregulating for them because for a child, we need safety. And by safety, I don't mean the absence of threat. I mean a sense of connection. So they fundamentally think that there is something wrong with me as a person. So it's not separated that, by the way, it's Stephanie, that thing that you did was bad. It's that you as a person, I am disappointed in you. Yeah, we probably all heard that that phrase. I'm not... Uh, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah and it, and it, the child internalizes that as a sense of shame. So it's not, so it's about like as a parent, in order to try and not cultivate this phone response, trying to set, like you're allowed to be disappointed in what they've done. Yes. But separating that from who they are and not revoking your love and care for them. So how do you, well, I mean, this is a totally different question and this is like a parenting podcast, but like what, what are, how are the ways to do that without making the child feel an internalised sense of shame? For, for the fawner, so a, a lot of the times when I'm talking about a narcissistic parent, which um, this is how somebody with a fawn re- response would come. So a parent that has made it all about themselves and they've parentified them. So the child generally, what we call, has an old head on young shoulders, is very mature for their age, maybe struggles to um, be friends with kids their own age, you know, with their peers. Mm-hmm. So what we have to identify with them actually is go back and to identify where this happened because the boundaries are completely skewered then with the parent. It's all about you meeting my need as the parent. So you do have to adapt. You do have to merge with what I want in order to feel safe. So this is your defense mechanism. This is your survival mode in order to feel safe. What happens is a lot of people are actually living in survival mode most of their lives. When somebody comes to me saying I have anxiety, they're living in survival mode. And... What we have to firstly become aware is to show how this happened, where the boundaries have been completely skewed, that there's no line between me and you. I, the parent, don't see you as an independent person going on to do what you want to do. I see See you as as my child, as my child, as an extension of me. me. Yeah. Yeah. So like what you do reflects on me. Yes. So we have to firstly see how the boundary has been completely skewed that you are over here before we can even go back to identify, well, what is a healthy boundary? The phone type, and you're right, and we can go into this if you want, go into how a phone type then parents, they generally parent the way they were brought up. 
in a different way to the narcissistic parent. So the narcissistic parent, it's all about me. You will you will adapt to what I want. And the fawner uh, capitulates that. and does that, uh, submits to what the parent wants. And in turn, because they say, well, this is just me. Now, when I have my own child, I will capitulate to the needs that you need as a child. It will be all about you. When you're upset, I won't be able to handle that. I will want to do everything to make it okay for you. The same way I did in my childhood. Yes, okay. So the boundaries have have gone again. So it's really by identity. So then you're not the parent that the child needs to co-regulate with and be like, make you feel safe. It's, you are still sort of the parent even though you're a child. Yes. Yeah, you are more the child than in the relationship. So that child will be like, I need to be okay so that my parent is okay. The child of the fawn. The child of the fawn, yeah. The child of the fawn will actually have too much responsibility. Um, Now they will think that they like it, that the child, so ask a child maybe what do they want for breakfast? You know, they want sweets for breakfast. They want to stay up late. So they're getting all these things. They're getting all their wants met, but they're not getting their needs met because children need uh, structure. They need boundaries. They really, really need boundaries. But the fawn child, the boundaries have been really skewered. So they don't know what is a healthy sense of boundaries. Right. Okay. And outside of being a parent, how does being a fawn type cause issue or manifest in, you know, like in in friendships, in relationships, in work? Like how can people identify, oh, actually, I think that might be a response for me. Yeah, I can run through a couple of questions if that's okay. Um, It's up to you if you at any stage want me to pause to answer or I can just ask the questions. So is it difficult for you to turn down a request from a friend, family member or co-worker? So you're answering sort of yes or no to these. Okay, I'll answer them. Okay. Okay, let's do this. Okay, go. So is it difficult for you to turn down a request from a friend, family member or co-worker? No. Do you struggle to relax unless you've finished all the things you have to do? Yes. Is your sense of identity based on what you do for other people? No. Do you almost never ask anybody to do things for you? Uh, No, I don't. You don't ask people? I do ask people to do do things for me. But these, I'm, I'm answering these, but like the version of myself five, six years ago would have been saying yes to all of these but we can talk about that after okay um on a daily basis do you rarely feel satisfied with how much you've accomplished that's not true i do feel satisfied with what i've accomplished do you feel guilty if you took time to relax or just do something pleasurable for yourself not anymore do you believe that no one would really care about you if you stopped doing all the things you do not anymore do you always assume that someone else knows better yes are you hyper aware of what people think of you yes always apologizing Yes. Uh, do you, would you do almost anything to avoid the disapproval of people who are important to you? Not anymore. Are you over, overly polite, have a fear of saying no? Uh, not anymore. Do you have anxiety or guilt when other people have a problem? Do you feel almost compelled or forced to help them? Not anymore. Do you feel the safest when giving? Do I feel safest when giving? Yeah, I would be a little bit more uncomfortable receiving. That was my next question. Do you feel guilty when someone gives to you receiving? Yeah. There's only three more. Do you find it easier to feel and express anger about injustices done to others rather than injustices done to yourself? Yes. Do you need others to approve of you in order to feel worthwhile? Sometimes. And does your self-esteem greatly depend on what others think of you? Sometimes. So I think I've come a long way. <laughs> but I think if you're answering yes to a lot of those questions. Yeah. And this this is, firstly, this is not a diagnosis, by the way, the phone response. This yes. is a term that's used the same with codependent, the same with empath. This is a term used to describe a collective 
um, set of behaviours. Set of behaviours. The same when we talk about attachment styles. They are not diagnoses. And they are just some questions, I suppose, to help people identify. What's interesting is you said, I would have answered yes to yes. a lot of them five years ago. Yeah. So I used to be, re- I used to not be the centre force of my own self-esteem at all. Um, but then I, I, I wrote a book called Can I Say No? Which is a question about like, am I allowed to say no? But also, do I have the capacity to say no? Mm. And since then, and also since been diagnosed as autistic, um, I realised that I, and I realised even before the diagnosis, I can't keep this up. Like I cannot keep doing for people what, what, what I'm not doing for myself. Mm. Um, um, and I didn't know if that was an age thing. But yeah, certainly in my 20s, it was all about like driving in the middle of the night to meet other people's needs. You said there, I wasn't a guiding force in my own life. And the phone response really has one of, so of all the four responses, freeze, fight, flight, fawn, um, narcissism would come under fight. They're arrested in their sense, in their emotional development. The fawn response, they would be the arrested in their um, sense of identity. Yes. Yeah. So there I will blend, I will mirror the expectation. Whatever you want me to do, I will mirror that expectation of you. Yeah. And again, that comes from childhood because that is learned. Uh, generally, as girls in particular fall into this category more, one, because it's culturally acceptable for boys to be angry. We encourage it. If boys are mad, little kids are mad on the football, you know, they're allowed to express their anger with girls or if they don't want to play with little Johnny, that's kind of mm-hmm. accepted. Whereas when girls do it, it's no, 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 be nice. Yeah. Be nice. Make sure you include, don't, you know, don't be seen as a bitch. So we're training them from a young age. And um, that's why I'm wondering, is it always about narcissistic parents? Because I can't like I feel like we're socialized to be mm. like this, to meet other people's needs. And like I wasn't I didn't I don't think I would have met all of those criteria five mm-hmm. years ago, right? But and so the phone response maybe in certain situations, like in in work situations where I was a little bit more insecure. Whereas like with family and with people I would always just be myself and do things my own way and that was always fine. Um but I do think that you can be socialised, certainly within friend groups, to be like, you know, I can feel my sense of place um, and my sense of love in a family unit is unconditional. Mm-hmm. I can do anything and my parents will still love me. This is all fine. But when I am in school and I have these friends, I know that I have to be nice to this girl and this girl or they're not going to be friends with me. And I have to say this thing to this person. I have to wear these clothes. I have to like this music. All of those things. So can you be like a fawn in certain settings? An untraumatised fawn. Is that is that what you mean? Well, I just mean that, like, can you have a fawn response without it coming from narcissistic parenting? Yeah. So in a stressful relationship like that at school, you will when you are stressed biologically, our amygdala is going to send adrenaline into the body and for you to act okay. in one of four ways. So you are going to choose. So what that's is the best way to be in that. That is to the, get those girls to be your friend. That is the best thing to do. That's not trauma. That No, that is the best thing to do at the time. It's the same when we, you know, go into a new office. We are going to be polite. Um, and there's so many healthy aspects to the phone. Um, so their kindness, their generosity, their giving. But it's when this is only what the person is. So it's when the balance are tipped and down here, they have... Um, can't express themselves, their own preferences, their own wants, their own needs, oh, their I own boundaries. Now. Right, okay. So these are wonderful traits, but it's that if we are only these things, if I am only agreeable, if I am 
only enough for what I can give to you if I have to live up to your expectation of me. So they're, like you're saying, a guiding force. If I have no sense of self, then that is really easy for me to do. Okay. So in answer to your questions, if you're, so if I am that way in certain situations, then it's probably just a pretty adaptive coping mechanism. But if you're doing that in all situations where you would rather not, then it's a trauma response. Yes. So when you're coming away, question it. When you really, I mean, when my clients come in to me, they'd generally be saying, um, well, they have anxiety constantly. You know, they they have a constant fear of anxiety and they say, I I just feel like I I don't know who I am. Yeah, Yeah, that would be a regular. So they, they don't really have a sense of themselves. I think what you're asking me and we can check when I'm talking about a narcissistic parent is when somebody grows up with a narcissistic parent and they themselves grow on up as the fawn, they in turn can then pass this on to their children to please and appease. Yes, so, okay. oh no, don't upset that person. Don't say no. Do do what they say is, inverted commas, the right thing. Mm-hmm. For um, autistic children, girls in particular are really good at mirroring what's expected of them. So, for example, you know, if a kid is stimming, if they're, um, you know, with their hands or if they're doing something with their feet and they're continually told to stop, you know, if the hand is placed in the leg or they're told to stop, to sit down, uh, girls in particular are quicker to adapt to that. So I suppose when I'm talking about the phone response, I'm not talking about it's not, I'm not talking about neurodivergence. Yes, Although yeah, yeah. autistic children and girls in particular are... Um, more likely to mirror what's expected of them. It's called masking. It's called masking. Yeah, yeah. and it's and I do it all the time. And it's um, and it's something that I've only recently become aware of. But like I remember, <laughs> like pulling up. I was the first person in my group of friends to drive. I remember pulling up outside my friends' houses, being like, "Oh God, what CD does she like?" And like freaking out to be like, "I have to have the music playing in the car that this person likes." And absolutely no idea what kind of music I liked. Which I know is a neurodivergence trait. And so we can we won't overlap them here. Um, so for people listening who answered those questions, what have you got to say if people were like answering yes to a lot of those questions? If somebody can identify themselves as the phone response. Yeah. What would I say? <laughs> I suppose firstly to see, to separate it. So I, on TikTok, I have uh, playlists on parentification to see how this has actually happened from childhood. And the more that we can bring awareness to actually, oh, I see why I did that. And that made actually perfect sense for me to do that in order to get that love and affection, to get that connection. Then it's easier to separate that behavior now out as an adult because these behaviors were essential in childhood. They worked for you, whereas they're detrimental in adulthood. And one of the biggest things that happened in childhood is actually that your no was extinguished. So that sense of self. So um, children are seen or not heard. Don't you answer back to me? That's cheeky. And your no is completely extinguished. So again, you're merging to what the other person wants. Out of those four responses, freeze, fight, flight, fawn, the fawn will really struggle to identify with their anger. For most people, their anger is obliterated. And when they're in therapy with me, they generally say, no, I, I'm not angry. I don't I don't feel I don't feel anger, which is how much that that has been pushed down and has been separated from their sense of self. And is it anger at I mean, it must be difficult if you're an adult who now is parenting, who probably if you've been 
if you've been a good enough fawn, you probably have a very good relationship with your parent, whoever it was that took yes. away the no. That like to all of a sudden be trying to identify anger with what has happened. That can be quite tricky, no? It's very tricky. And in therapy, it takes a long time for somebody to be able to see actually what has happened, because when they come in, they're often still in mesh. So these are adult, you know, adult children, 30s, 40s, 50s, and they are still enmeshed with the parent and what the parent wants. And they, they can't see themselves as separate. The one thing that actually really benefits the phone is psychoeducation. They are very quick to learn this when it's spoken to them they really get it they can really see because again this is not inscribed in our DNA it's not who we are and it can also show a pattern actually how I've been attracted to or um, the addiction of being with another narcissist type okay because that is familiar to us it doesn't mean that it's healthy yes okay. <laughs> but it's, but it's, what it's we know. familiar to us and we're also like we have curated ourselves to be very attractive to narcissists because we'll Absolutely. just do what they want. So yeah. they'll just keep coming up. And, so, and society in general, when you are um, the giver, the doer, the yes person, you're a wonderful friend to have around because like you said, you'll come and pick somebody up at two or three o'clock night, in the yeah. morning and you'll agree and you'll never challenge my opinion. But here is then the bit where the connection is lost. And a lot of, again, phoners, codependents struggle with this bit because they will say to me, but I, I really want that connection. I re- this is what it's about for me. I really want that connection. But actually, they're hiding behind their giving. They're hiding behind their kindness and they're not showing themselves. So if so, what I'm doing now is I'm putting my hand up between me and you and see the way you can just see my hand. You can't yeah, see, see all of face. me. So if I continually agree with you and everything you say, yes, yes, I like that food too. Yes, I like that music too. You're seeing literally a mirror of yourself. You are seeing this version. So you don't really see me. So ultimately, I am actually not getting that connection with you. No. Because I am not showing myself. But But if you don't know yourself, can you identify that you're not getting that connection? Like if you've never had it. Like if you've never been truly loved and known for who you actually are unconditionally with all of your difficulties and your belligerence, then are you going to acknowledge, can you identify when that's missing if you've never had it? It's definitely, I don't think people can put a name on it, but absolutely they have a sense of feeling it, a sense of being lost, unknown, stuck in their lives. A lot of people, when they come, they can identify the resentment. So if I continually give and give and give and give and give to you, there there comes a point where I might be resentful of that behaviour, especially if it's not reciprocal, especially if you're not giving it back to me. Which it so frequently isn't when you give it so freely, you know. And I also think the people who give so freely of themselves from this place of fawning, no one ever stops to ask what they need or else they're so good at hiding their needs that theirs are never met. It's like, oh, no, no, I don't need anything. It's There's fine. Firstly, for a lot of them, it it's completely unconscious. They're not aware that they have a need uh, because it's so quick to see what it is you need. You're the most important. And once you're happy, I'll be happy. Um, and when I mean happy, it's really regulated, like a sense of, so not dysregulated, not anxiety. Yeah. Um, but often then it is, is that they have learned from childhood generally that actually I have to be 
hyper independent. I There isn't that person for me. So if a parent has struggled with their own uh, mental health issues, their own depression or their own anxiety, or if they've gone through their own trauma, you know, a death of a s- child, so a death of a sibling or a parent, if they have if they're struggling, if they're unhappy in their own marriage through a divorce. So if for whatever reason the parent is unavailable. Is unavailable, disconnected. The child learns actually then it's not okay for me to burden. They feel like it's burdening needs. the parent. So I will become hyper independent. And actually the fawn is generally really, really resilient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're very strong and they're so used to doing things for themselves. They don't even recognise that they have a need. And they actually, they really struggle with the receiving as well. So it's twofold. It's one or maybe three. I I don't even think I have a need because this is just what I've done all my life. If something needs doing, I do it myself. I've never been familiar with relying on somebody else. That is uncomfortable for me because it has never been familiar. So one identifying that and then here's here's the part of breaking the pattern. So I only use childhood to identify what happens, but it's actually now here in the present that we make the change in our safe, healthy relationships or unhealthy ones that we still make the change. So how now, if I'm really struggling with something, can I break that pattern, which is going to be very difficult for me? I'm going to be dysregulated doing it and actually reach out and ask somebody for help. Okay, and so for some people... That just feels like the most uncomfortable, potentially rude, um, gross thing that they could ever contemplate. Yeah. So there we're talking complete dysregulation, feeling sick in the stomach, uh, fast heartbeat, But what if they hands. don't feel like they need the help? I mean, they won't feel like they need the help, right? Are they just asking for it as an exercise to try and... No, no, re-learn? no, no. They have to, they have to need the help. Okay. Um, so but do you mean asking for help from you? Oh, no, 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 no. So, so asking for help in, in their life. So perhaps asking their partner. So for let's use an example. Um, so a lot of mothers will, so the, the phone type mothers, they will take on the whole responsibility of their kids themselves. They will do everything, organise everything. And they will never even think that actually this is my partner, my husband's, the we children's father responsibility. Parents. We are both parents. So they will, so for... Most people, they will see, not for most, for a lot of people, they will actually see, well, no, this is your responsibility to do this as well. Um, For the phoner, they will never even see that. And that's a huge thing that they will think that they're asking for help to go and ask the partner to actually do something that they're responsible for. Okay, so it's actually not a big ask. This is your responsibility. It's seeing actually what is the other person's responsibility. And then also, if I'm really struggling with something, yeah, and I'm, I'm talking about simple things, like maybe if I'm under pressure today and you as my friend or my sister, uh, could you help me out with this? Could you could you pick up that? And you're well within your rights to say no, but the phoner will feel that that is rejection. Okay. So there's work, there's work around that as well, around this this awareness. Taking a break from the episode to bring you an ad because this podcast is only possible because of our sponsor. Supporting our sponsor supports the podcast. And let me tell you about who they are. Rockwell's financial planning service is designed for anyone who feels as if they kind of need to just put a shape on their finances. I don't know if you're like me, you kind of feel like, oh, my finances are all over the place. I need to kind of start adulting. This is the service for you. Whether you're like a senior executive in a multinational company or a small business owner or just a young couple looking to get a head start in your financial planning, a single person who wants to make plans for their future, 
So they consider themselves financial doers rather than financial planners, which I really like because it's active. It's not just like um, namby-pamby sort of making a plan. doesn't matter where you are in the country. They're happy to help you in person or over Zoom. Pensions and investments are really important, but they're absolutely useless without knowing why you're using them and what you're using them for. They are in the outcomes business. They are in the business of results. So it's not just about the plan, it's about the action. So they use this like award-winning investment advice to help their clients achieve their goals. And they have a special offer for you listening right now, for basically listeners. If you go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically, you can book a complimentary financial planning session today. You'll get a cash flow model which outlines any gaps in your finances and they'll give you the first steps to achieving your specific goals. I highly recommend Rockwell and I think as a basically listener, you should definitely check it out. It's free. It's going to put you on the right path to getting your finances in order. That's it. Go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding. And you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for €5 plus that. uh, Or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the €5 that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast, say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. The Podcast Studios is the home of the Headstuff Podcast Network. It's where lots of our shows are recorded and we work on editing, promotion, videos, live shows and lots more. As a podcast production company with three state-of-the-art studios for audio and video in Dublin city centre, we can work with you to tell great stories in a professional and engaging way. From government organisations to charities, arts groups to international brands, entrepreneurs to hobbyists, we've worked with everybody and we can help you to get the word out. Whether you need studio time, you're hosting a live stream or webinar, or you need support with editing or marketing, we can tailor a package for you. For more info, head to thepodcaststudios.ie. I have a friend who I think, I mean, I'm not going to diagnose anyone, but I, who I think is a fauner, and during COVID, had COVID and needed, like, like couldn't leave and actually needed groceries or whatever, yeah. and was very uncomfortable 
like the, so many times I offered and yeah. I was like I'm just going to do this because I know that yeah. there's no physical way that you can meet this need yourself yeah like oh I have a an, an online delivery and you're like yeah when is that coming probably next Tuesday and um, that's a so generally that's what happened in, in therapy that no not when somebody has COVID because they wouldn't be in, but when they come in and here is a need. So it's very obvious. We will not sit and come up with some random thing and how can you ask for help? Because yeah. So it's identifying that and going, what was your struggle then? What was your fear in asking for them? And generally it's, well, I didn't want to be a burden. And we link that back. Oh, where, where's that coming from? Mm-hmm. So here's the difference between a CBT approach and a kind of trauma-informed approach. CBT will tell, and I'm a trained CBT therapist as well, CBT will tell you to just change your thoughts. Change your thoughts and they will influence your... So I'm not a burden. I'm I'm yes. not a burden and get to that uh, core belief. And even if you say, so the negative belief that if she says no, um, I will be unlovable. So I am lovable even if you say no. And that works. I mean, our thoughts absolutely play a role and influence error emotions and our behaviours. But if this is a trauma response, if this has stemmed from childhood and we have lived this for the people that say, this is just who I am, this is this is an innate part of me. If we can't identify here where the child, where they have learned this and then see actually what the need is of the child of themselves. A lot of people that come to me, they have their own kids and it really shows up then when they see their four, five, six, seven year old And they're just having a bad day at school. You know, little Johnny won't play with them or they're worried about something coming up. And the phoner, which is the empath, can really tune into that in the child and see what the child needs, whether that's a hug, you know, just a little bit of emotional support, an ear. And then it's going, wow, that was never given to me. Mm -hmm. How was that missed? How was that noticed? And there's a lot of pain there. And there's a lot of grieving there for somebody to do. And here is actually where the healthy anger comes in then when they're going, because it's so obvious to them with their children. Yes. Or if they can recognize if they have a little niece or a nephew when something is troubling them. Generally, they're acting out some sort of behavior. You know, they're coming in they're maybe throwing their school bag on the ground, banging a door, being mean to their siblings. And then it's going, God, yeah, how, how was that missed? Where, where was that for me? And here's the part where, I don't know if you're familiar with the term reparenting or inner child work, where we say, well, what was it you needed? What was it you needed then? And generally they'll say, I needed just compassion, understanding, you know. And it's there that when we get that connection and we actually can work on healing that wound, that that shifts the the trauma, because the trauma stays stored in the body. And when we identify that, that actually here now, when I'm asking you for help, if I'm at home and I've COVID and I'm asking you to get my groceries, here's where the past and present blur. It's not that I'm asking you, Stephanie, my friend, to get uh, groceries. It's actually that I'm stuck back here and it and it feels unsafe for me to rely on you in case that you... Um, accuse me of being demanding um, ungrateful because you want more you know you're being ungrateful Um, or there's a word um, I just can't think of it when you know high maintenance you know you're you're asking for an awful lot so it's those fears that are playing out whereas when the adult can identify and go oh 
that actually wasn't me. <laughs> that was through whatever was going on with this per- person. I suppose when I say narcissist, I think a lot of people think that it means um, something derogatory, something insulting. It's, and that's that's not what I mean by it. I mean generally, narcissists are stuck in their fight response, um, and they too have been. Um, their emotional awareness is not there. Where the phoner is doesn't have a healthy sense of self, they and are arrested in their sense of development. The narcissist, the fight, is generally arrested in their emotional sense of self. So they are generally often the parent acting like a toddler, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they are acting out. So when the adult comes to me in therapy and they can identify that, that actually shifts here. It's not. It's not that I sit with somebody and I'm like, okay, now here is uh, here is an exercise for you to go and play out. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's actually when we identify, and that was a really good example, if you're at home and of COVID and you can't ask for help, well, where did this come from? What would you have said to your to your younger self? What would you do? Mm-hmm. And then what, what would that be like now? And th- when we shift that in the body, natural behaviours start to emerge and start to change. That's absolutely fascinating stuff. And and also like very often when I say to this person or when you say to someone in that situation, like you'd ask, like if I asked you to get me groceries, you'd get me what I wanted and more. Mm. And every day, even if I didn't want it, like you give people the shirt off your back, even when they don't need a shirt. Yes. <laughs> um, so it, it can be really difficult, but like for them to be objective and say, this is not a big ask. Asking me to get you groceries when you've got COVID is not a big ask. Um, but for them, it can feel so huge because so many little requests went unmet. They, they really struggle to identify them. You're right. It's it's a lot of people come and they're like, I, I didn't I didn't know that that was a need. Preferences. They think I don't I don't have a right to have a preference. So where would you like to go for something to eat? Oh, wait, that's up to you. Where, where do you want? What music do you like? What music do you like? And even that can seem like, so that's dysregulating to actually share my opinion. I equate that to like a hologram, you know, a hologram and it's coming in and out. That actually, when you're asking a question or think of a football game, that if I kick a ball over to you, I want to see you. So I want you to kick back to me. So what is your opinion? What is your preference? Whereas the phoner, it's kind of like kicking a ball over and it it goes unnoticed because you're just agreeing with me. Yes, And that is then what leaves the person with not feeling seen, not feeling understood. And you're right, it goes back to um, their own um, internal locus of uh, evaluation, like who who am I? And so a lot in therapy is actually discovering that. Who am I? What do I like? And I think for a lot of people who haven't, like, yeah, it is like, what do I like? I think it's not that people, you can get a sense when you're talking about these things that like people know what they like, but they don't want to share it in case it's rejected. But I think if you've denied it for so long, you actually might be like, actually, I, I don't know what food I prefer. I just always go with what I prefer for you to be happy. So yeah, that's my so preference. My, so there, I will abandon my needs or my wants or my preferences. It's not important. What is more important is that your needs are met. Yeah. Which yeah, is, and I will abandon my self, sense of self. So how, if people are ultimate fawns, right, how they probably don't identify all of these things in themselves. So what do they present with that makes them be sitting in front of you? Yeah, anxiety or perfectionism. 
again, it's not identified. <laughs> Nobody ever comes into me and says, I'm a perfectionist, I need to change. Um, but through the therapy, we will see what's driving the perfectionism. Okay. And generally what's driving the perfectionism is fear and mostly shame. And shame is an emotion that, by the way, firstly, everybody has. But it's really hard for people to identify and they struggle and they think, well, again, this is who I am. I'm just no good if this thing isn't met, if I don't do this thing. But if I do this thing, oh, that will give me such a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. And they're chasing that sense of relief, which is reducing the anxiety. So, um, again, a perfectionist will be praised in society. You know, they are the A graders. They are the doers. And this can be seen as such a brilliant quality. And there's a big difference in, I suppose, healthy striving, you know, we and doing well than perfectionism, because that's if the thing doesn't go well, I will feel unworthy. I will feel not good enough. Yes. Yeah, so like not being able to separate yourself from your achievements. So being able to say I did a good thing rather than I am a good person. So like if and the opposite of that, which is I failed at this thing I started to try to do, not meaning I am a failure as a person. Yes. So that would be CBT to change the thoughts. And I would work with that. But also I would incorporate then identifying where those beliefs came from. Yeah. And identifying it in your body. How do I feel when I feel shame? Where do I notice that in my body? And immediately it's kind of like if I do something, you know, I want the ground to open up and swallow me. Or if somebody knew this thing about me, (laughs) I would be mortified. Like that's kind of the feeling of shame. And it's feeling, so I have my, my two hands up here together and it's one feeling less than. So when we compare with other people that I am not good enough and that I feel less than you or somebody else. Or alternatively, um, if I'm... If I'm doing well and we say in Ireland, you know, um, don't get too big for your boots, you know, don't get out of your box. So in other words, stay down, stay small. So there's two ends of shame and it's to recognize that feeling. And you're right. The difference between like guilt and shame is guilt. I did a bad thing. So if I spilt over this water, I would feel guilty. God, that's I'd feel really bad. Shame is now I'm I'm a bad person. I even as I say that if I spilt off, you know, I feel sick in my stomach. Yeah. So it's it's identifying that um and then being able to how can I self-regulate? How can I identify that? And a bit like again going back to that child work, well if I made a mistake, if a child spilt over a glass of water, what would we say to them? You know, mistakes happen. You're only you're only human. It's okay. You're still loved. And it's with that compassion that actually the change comes about rather than just the thought, well, just because I spilled that water, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That doesn't mean I'm unlovable. It's actually through that compassion that we see how we would treat somebody else. Yeah. And that then we can cultivate that sense of compassion for ourselves that then. So what we would say, you know, when people say, oh, I'm really hard on myself or we'd say that about other people, she's really hard on herself. And generally they're beating themselves up over shame. So how can we cultivate compassion instead of shame? I could talk to you about this all day. (laughs) So but I I said this in the last podcast as well. Is it curable? Um, Yes. Yeah. (laughs) They were like, well, we don't like the word curable, but it is something that you can work. So and firstly, I was going to say, so the the biggest thing that I always get asked is how can we fix it? And sometimes you don't need to. Yeah. Here's the thing. You were never broken. You had a right. So when a child is born, 
they cry out when they're hungry. They cry out when they're for comfort. Little children are, you know, when they're going through about two, there's a, a healthy narcissism in them. Mine, that's mine. No, I'm not sharing. So they absolutely innately know what they want and know what they need. And it's us, it's the adults that take, take that away from them. Yeah, mm-hmm. for the narcissist parent, it's where it's absolutely obliterated. Here's a quick example, I suppose, that I'll share even with me with my kids. So my, uh, he was seven at the time. He came third in a little art competition for school and he was going into the local credit union to get his, um, to get his picture taken for the local paper. So he came downstairs and he was wearing his casual gear and I was like, go back up and change. And he said no once. And I was like, go back up and change. He said no twice. The third time he said no, because I was like, go back up. I meant put on your, you know, your jeans and your shirt, your Sunday clothes. And the third time he said no, I noticed myself becoming dysregulated, right? So that's, I was getting angry and I was going to launch into the, don't you back answer me, do what you're told, you know, get upstairs and get changed. Whereas I'm able to identify this really quickly in myself. So I was like, oh, what, what's going on here that has got me dysregulated? So the question that I asked myself is, what's the fear? So follow the fear. What am I scared of? And initially, the first thought that came into my head was, um, I'm, I don't want anybody to judge my child. Oh, like what a loving mother I am. And yeah. then I quickly realized, no, they're not going to judge him. They're going to judge me. You. So there's my fear that I'm going to go in and these other mothers are going to judge me. Because so, your kid's in a tracksuit. Yeah, and and yeah. so and here it is that how can I how can I identify his needs? Because ultimately, when he's a teenager, I'm going to be saying to him, "Why can't you express yourself and don't follow the crowd?" So here, when he is actually expressing his autonomy, and does that align with my values? Well, do you, and he he was wearing a nice top, and there were a nice pair of tracks at bottoms, and he looked so he wasn't going in in dirty clothes. They weren't yeah. a jersey, you know. So are you respectful? And he, But it was when I identified that actually what was driving my behavior that I was able to change it. Yeah. And here's the shame. So those other mothers can judge this part of me and they can say that I have no sense of style, (laughs) that my son has, you know, that no sense of style. And you can judge that and you could be correct on that. That's up to you. But you can't judge me and say that I'm a bad mother because of it. And there is where we can shift the shame. Absolutely. Where can people find out more about this and if people want to and where can people find more from you and if people want to work with you, do you take clients? Those are the questions that we always get. Okay, I do take clients. At the minute, I'm fully booked up my client work. Um, I Most of my clients come through GPs, although I do take... Um, if anybody wants to get in touch, I suppose, to ask my website, www.katiemckenna.ie. On that, I have blogs on trauma and the phone response. I have a blog on parentification. Um, I also have a have one or two talks up that I did. I put a lot of my content on TikTok. I just find it a really easy platform to use. I'm on Instagram, but I'm less prevalent on it so uh, TikTok at Katie McKenna Therapist Okay brilliant thank you so very much um, for joining us I'm sure we will have questions from people we might get you back in again um, another time that was thoroughly enjoyable and thank you for listening to another episode of Basically we were produced this week by Julie Hassett our music is by Only Ruin our graphic design is by Kahal O'Gara and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network see you next week This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more 
or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.